Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. And it's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue that we've been working very hard on, I'm the editor of the magazine, then why not head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Simply put your details into our website and we'd be delighted to send you a free copy you can try before you buy. So why not give that a go? But today on The Profile, I'm delighted to say I'm speaking to Lyndon Bowring. Lyndon is the chairman of the Christian Charity Care, which stands for Christian Action Research and Education. Care seeks to uphold human dignity and to support the most vulnerable people in society, engaging with politicians and promoting Christian community-based initiatives. Lyndon is an ordained Elim minister and has been involved in many Christian initiatives over the years on boards and advisory councils, networking with other leaders and speaking at some of the big events, including Spring Harvest and Keswick, often with his wife Celia as well. Lyndon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Privileged, Sam. We always like to start by asking about a person's life growing up. So tell me, I believe you uh, grew up in Wales. Tell me about what Indeed. life was like and how you became a Christian. Yeah, I grew up on a council estate in Wales. So the only estates that I ever encountered were council estates. So when I came to London as a student and talked about growing up on my parents' estate, <laughs> my student friends thought of another kind of estate. <laughs> and one friend said to me at half term, could I come down and see your parents' estate? I said, yes. <laughs> And when we drove up the hill to 12 asbestos prefabs for the first part of the estate, he pulled the car in to the side of the road and pulled the handbrake up, turned the ignition off and just couldn't stop laughing. And then asked me, do you not realize why I'm laughing? I said, no idea. This is your parents' estate. I said, yes. Then he explained to me another kind of estate. I bet he had a right shock. Yes, he did. And uh, it was a lovely uh, local Elim church, faithful gospel preaching. And uh, they used to do open air preaching. My father got converted from atheism. He was a, a communist. They called him Red Bowring in our town. He was wonderfully converted. And we as a family were drawn in. And in time, myself and my three brothers all came to know the Lord. And so I, I honor that faithful local Elim church. And I'm proud to be an Elim yes. minister. And yeah. uh, I'm on the staff at Kensington Temple still. And that's an honor. I've been there now next year. Well, I've been there 50 years. Wow. Fantastic privilege. That's really remarkable that you've uh, not only became a Christian at such an early age, but have stayed in the same denomination yeah. for your whole life. What is it particularly about Elim that you feel you've always really been drawn to and, and stayed with for so I long? I think it was the diligence and faithfulness of the Sunday school teachers, the youth workers. We had about 150 in our Sunday school and about 30 staff. And, de- and the deacons and the elders and their dedicated and the ministers that I feel... Um, a loyalty, mm. and I want to stay in Elium all my days as a way of saying thank you to those who invested so much in me. Yeah. Do you think sometimes people can almost chop and change denominations a little bit too freely? Is, is there I something th- to be said about loyalty? Yeah, well, th- that's, that's the trend. Um, you know, consumerism, individualism, and entitlement, um, and we'll go from here to there to there to there, and I don't want to be critical of anyone else um, 
Sometimes it's lovely to see Baptists becoming Anglicans and Anglicans turning into free church. Um, but I think not enough is said about loyalty. Mm, yes. Um, the two famous verses in Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart in all your ways, acknowledge him and so on. I think the two preceding verses are amongst the most powerful. It's the only verse I have on my wall at home. Take loyalty and kindness, bind them around your neck like a necklace, and you will find favor with God and men. Mm. And I think, you know, we just need more yes. loyalty and more kindness. Sure. So you became a Christian as a youngster and then went on to London Bible College, which is now London School of Theology. Yeah. What was the decision to study theology? Well, uh, to be honest, um, I felt that there had been a Bible school in a Presbyterian church in Cardiff that I attended on Saturday mornings, and I suddenly had a hunger. Uh, it gave me a hunger for the Word of God, and I thought it would be great and in those days, you could get a grant for accommodation and for fees um, just to go and study God's Word and come back home to Wales, just right, be yeah. a more equipped servant of the Lord. I had no idea and no intention of going into the ministry. Mm. My particularly exciting work in Wales was just mentoring younger guys and bringing them on. I just thought I would do that for the rest of my life, either in my spare time or if the Lord provided. Yeah, yeah and... Uh, um, I went to the, one of the lecturers at the um, Elim Bible College. I won't name him, but I asked his wisdom. He said, oh, yes, don't, don't, don't go to Elim, go to the London Bible College. <laughs> Which in those days uh, was considered a dangerous thing to do. Okay. Uh, it was thought that one would lose one's anointing if one went to a college that didn't preach gifts of the Holy Spirit and so on. But uh, quite the opposite. I came out of LBC more Pentecostal in some ways, um, and there were so many in there who had a similar view of the Holy Spirit anyway. So yeah. was, so, so, if you went in not expecting to go into ministry, what was the plan? Did you have a different career path kind of mapped out at that point? No, that was the step of faith. Um, so I had no idea what I would do, come back to Wales. I, I suppose in my heart of hearts, I was believing that the Lord was calling me into some sort of full-time work which wasn't the ministry right. quotes yes i could never dream of being an elim minister i was too <laughs> mischievous but, um, anyway well clearly god had other ideas yes. right yes. so tell me what did happen after you studied theology well each student coming to london Bible college we were in the center of london we were just opposite madame two swords each student was assigned a church of their own denomination and kensington temple was the only elim pentecostal church in london so I was on the student team from day one. And um, Eldin Corsi was the senior minister then, and he invited me to become his student assistant in my third year, and which I did, and loved it, just working alongside him on a Sunday, occasionally preaching, learning to uh, conduct myself before hundreds of people. And then at the end of that, he said, would you stay? And I, I it was the last thing I thought of. In fact... <laughs> In those days, the diesel fumes at Paddington Station was a beautiful smell for me because uh, it was, I knew I was going home. Uh, and I, I would say for the three years that I served in London yeah. and studied, I won't say I hated it, but I couldn't, wish, couldn't wait to get back home. Your heart was in Wales. Yeah, absolutely. I never dreamt of London, the last place in the world or in, in the nation. But 
you know, overnight it seemed I was on a 12, number 12 bus going up Bayswater Road. I looked across to Paddington Station on the one side and Hyde Park on the other, and I suddenly thought, hey, I love this city. And, uh, and, and it was an overwhelming realisation that, that obviously a process had been going on in my heart that I hadn't been aware of, and I did love London. Hmm. And that was before Eldon Corsi asked me. And uh, when he asked me, I said, oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and you- then from day one, he said, I don't believe in assistant ministers. You're an associate and you will preach um, as often as I do. So I'll do it morning, right. you do evenings for this month and then we'll swap next month. And he also took on the national youth director's role of Elim. So he was traveling. So I was quite often preaching morning and evening. Wow. And Clive Calvert said to me some years later when I asked him, you know, you invited me to Spring Harvest, you gave me the big top to preach from day one. Wasn't that a risk? And I expect him to say, well, yes, it was. He said, no. You were the only guy in your 20s that he knew that was preaching to hundreds of people every single Sunday. Mm. And I thought, looking back, what a debt of gratitude I have to Eldon Corsi for trusting me, mm. giving me that experience. And you've stayed in London, I guess, ever since, have you? Mm. Yeah. How many years now have you been in London? Um, next year, it'll be 50. So we'll move on, obviously, and talk. We'll move on and talk about care in a in a moment. This charity that you've been involved in for for so many years, and really a, a huge part of care is about Christianity in public life. And I'd love to know for you personally, where did that come from? That belief that Christians should be involved in public life. Well, to be honest, Sam, it was the end of my time at Kensington Temple, and I'm involved in the Festival of Light never dreaming that I would be anything but a voluntary board member. But Barbara Wooten, she's a famous atheist peer in the House of Lords, Commons had gone into recess and uh, lots of parliamentarians in the House of Lords had gone off on late in the summer, just before the House of Lords. She introduced a bill which would have legalised 16 of the 22 relationships the Bible forbids in marriage. Stepfather, stepdaughter, step... so on. And... Um, you know, mainly in the House of Lords, you rarely take a vote at second reading. It's just a principle, you know. It, it's not done. and it's. But she decided she wanted a vote. And she got it, got it through. And I had telephoned, I got the information of about 12 Christian peers that I knew. A, each one didn't know that Baroness Wooden was introducing this bill. And B, they were well and truly in their holiday season in Scotland and wherever and couldn't be in the House of Lords. They all turned up for third reading and voted against it, which is bad blood. That's not considered good manners. If you want to vote against something, you, you're there right. second reading. Earlier, okay. Mm, earlier. So it, it, we knew it would never become law. Right. But the, the knowledge that these peers, Christian, godly men and women, didn't know was a final straw, really. And it's discovered that the church was disengaged, mm. not even praying in 1967, when that abortion act came through Parliament, there was no fasting, there was no praying. It was a peer in the House of Lords who said to me, whilst Christians were asleep in the 1960s, lights went out in this house that may never be read it again. So that was a final straw, mm. and I went to my denomination and I asked if I could be a, um, a voluntary, as it were, unpaid chairman of the Nationwide Festival of Light. Right. And stay as associate minister. And they yes. said, you must choose either okay. or. Wow. And I cried. I didn't want to lose KT. 
I loved it. It was such a privilege. But I, I felt a strong call of God, and um, there was no money offered me. It was a step of faith. The friends got around me and said, oh, we'll, we'll look after you, don't worry, which they did. <laughs> yes. The, as you mentioned, the, uh, the Nationwide Festival of Lights... Um, quite a remarkable event for those who don't know. I think at the time it was the largest gathering of Christians in one place in Trafalgar Square in 1971, 35,000 people. And, and as you say, this kind of came about post the 1960s, the sexual revolution, yeah. laws have been passed that yeah. most Christians were against and it kind of been taken by surprise. Yeah. And so came together in Trafalgar Square, tens of thousands of them, um, for this for this nationwide festival of light to I make make some sort of a stand, I guess. Yeah. And it was a stand for truth, for light. Um, they felt it had been a darkness. You know, previously witchcraft was outlawed. That was repealed. Abortion, divorce, homosexuality, theatres, cinemas, obscenity. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable. And the church, a bunch of these senior leaders woke up and said, we've got to do something, let's stand. And and it still is the largest gathering of Christians in a public place still. No one's um, beaten that record. But... They said at the end of it, wow, what, what was that all about? And said, so we've got to do something. So somebody said, well, let's set up a charity and, and begin to support godly men and women and people of goodwill in both houses mm. of parliament and uh, be a Christian campaigning. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, care has gone on in the 1980s. I know you moved to Westminster, where you're still based, just around the corner from where we're sitting. Uh, and, of course, Care for the Family, mo- many people will be aware of that as a yeah. separate charity, yeah. started as CARES yeah. uh, project. And it's now become its own uh, its own charity in its own right, headed by Rob Parsons, who, of course, is a regular contributor to Premier Christianity magazine. You can read his thoughts in our magazine every other month. So there's been remarkable growth and even other organisations that have come out of care over the years. Quite the legacy as you look back. Yes, I mean, not many people know that Care for the Family was a department of care and Rob was our honorary regional director in Wales. Um, he's been an outstanding support and advisor to us, still is. Um, I see him this week. We get away, six of us, on a prayer retreat for 24 hours and uh, he's a special colleague and we knew the care for the family would become greater than care you know it's just there was a, a wind of god's approval behind their sails and they've gone on from strength to strength and they've acquired new premises now and just to see the way god's using rob and the team mm. i went away for a weekend uh, with about 150 200 care for the family supporters and i was amazed how much other than rob was going on you kind of associate rob with and he's, he's Amazing. I've attended so many of his seminars and lectures and speaking engagements. He's, he's one of the most effective communicators in the body of Christ, in my estimation. And uh, in 2006, another highlight, I guess, in, in terms of some of what CARE has been involved in. I know in 2006 you really became involved in the fight against human trafficking. And there are, there are a number of Christian charities we could name that have have kind of got alongside this particular campaign and noted this modern form of slavery that we must do away with. Um, I think it was also in 2006, actually, that Steve Chalk found his Stop the Traffic. We could also talk of International Justice Mission and and many others. It it seems like Christians of all denominations and backgrounds have really taken this 
on in the last decade or two, this issue of human trafficking. Um, in fact, in my estimation, I'd say if you were to survey the general population about the issue and then survey the Christian population, I would guess that more Christians are involved or at least aware of this issue than the general population. I don't know if you'd agree with that I assessment. Think so. Yes. And Ben Cooley of Hope for Justice came to see me. He wanted to learn how to do lobbying and advocacy. And, uh, and he asked if he could meet with us. So we brought the team together and uh, he asked us all sorts of questions and it was amazing because he said I'm not going to go there when I see your expertise and your experience and your years of work please will you be there for us we'll, we'll do the hard work you know <laughs> out in the field with the police and social yeah. services and tracking down traffickers and getting, bring them to justice and and we'll leave it to you and of course, the first trafficking bill ever, ever to come before the Parliament was in Northern Ireland, Lord Morrow's bill. That was drafted by the care team. And Lord Morrow would publicly say that. And he, he when he saw the bill, we thought he might make amendments. He, he tabled it the day he received it, or the day after he received it. Um, and then that, that influenced Theresa May, and uh, many parliamentarians were were behind, care was behind parliamentarians serving them and then Theresa May and the Modern Slavery Bill and now um, Lord McColl's bill which Frank Field has been championing to provide more care and protection once these girls are, or boys are rescued. So yeah, I mean it's been a privilege. So there's no, no we haven't got any competitors in the public affairs world. Mm. I think lots of agencies might feel you know, out there I don't know but, uh, sure. So there's lots of charities out there, perhaps kind of on the ground, so to speak, with, yeah. with victims yeah. and, and helping people. But in terms of influencing public policy yeah. and talking to politicians about the issue, this is something that, that you've been involved in almost by yourselves as care. As far as I know. Yeah. yeah. And we've got a full-time staff worker, Louise, who is so knowledgeable, more than any parliamentarian. They turn to her for advice, <laughs> on, on even on the procedures yes. um, that within the parliaments and assemblies. She's, yes. So, so what are some of the highlights like that as you look back on CARE's history so far and you think, wow, we really had an influence there and, and like what you were just saying with human trafficking, actually changed or had real influence on what Parliament was doing. What are some of the other areas you feel like you've seen real successes? Well, in the early days, um, we were very involved with MPs and peers and there were indecent displays, for example, in London. You cannot imagine some of the um, posters and and artwork outside some of the Soho clubs and cinemas. It was pornographic. There's no law to prevent it. So we helped to introduce an indecent displays bill, which, I mean, it's a little bit archaic now, but nevertheless, it's in force. Mm. And uh, whilst there are certain unsavory things you see in Soho, there aren't those anymore. Then we did the child protection bill uh, with um, MPs and peers and and that was, and then the video recordings. There were um, sex shops were selling porn material legally, and um, or illegally then, or was it legally? But anyway, the Video Recordings Act in the early days. More latterly, it was seen tremendous victory um, in the fight against euthanasia. So that's been a real triumph. That was two years ago, and um, an overwhelming mm. number of MPs turned up to throw out a bill that would have a physician-assisted dying. Yes. The physician would prescribe you lethal pills, give them to you and supervise you mm. swallowing them. 
And um, do you think on that issue, while you've seen some level of success, there are some who who sort of look at the direction the country's going more broadly and say, well, I think it's only a matter of time. Sometimes, when my heart's not filled with faith, I think we will see euthanasia one day. Not in my lifetime, but I believe in my children's lifetime. And yet, if a new generation would take it up with as much zeal as we've tried to, I've got confidence that God will, in his mercy, not give us what we deserve, um, give us what we don't deserve, and there'll be another victory. And, and, and we could hold out on that for more than one generation, providing that we can continue to support the hospice movement and... Uh, the Isle of Man had recently had a, a bill on euthanasia. We supported them, gave them briefings, and in the end, a bill for the hospice movement instead was, was replaced. So we are the world's leading nation on hospice care, and and that's largely voluntary, not entirely, but largely. And I think if, if that can grow and Christians mm. get more and more involved and social care, those who are vulnerable at the end of life, we might. Mm. How would you describe your calling? Well, if I can say that I never thought I was called to preach, and I've been privileged to preach in most of the major auditoriums in the UK and Northern Ireland. The UK includes Northern Ireland, in Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, Spring Harvest in Keswick. That came as a surprise. My heart's desire, when I began, I felt called to mentor young Christians and young people. And it was 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says, The things you heard of me, amongst many witnesses, commit to faithful men, who will teach others also. There was a kind of a discipleship, equipping a younger generation or another generation to teach others also. That came to me forcibly. Not that, But then, you know, I became an executive chairman, sitting at a desk with a strategic responsibility, and that was all a surprise. I'd never have dreamt that God would have called me to a, that position. So it's difficult to describe what I thought I was going to give my whole life to, discipling individual Christians. Um, and I work with the Navigators. They're an amazing organization that teach, you know, others to teach others also. And um, lots of other things have happened. And and uh, preaching every Sunday to hundreds of people, leading an organization like CARE, I had to have help. And I did have help from a dear, dear friend, Jeff Ridsdale, amazing help. Uh, hours and hours he spent with me, schooling me in the principles of management and and vision and so on. So yeah. it's hard to describe. It's hard to describe. It's been such a varied yeah. career, I, I yeah. suppose. Um, you have, I guess, for the majority of that time, though, given yourself, given your life, really, to care. Yeah. Um, has it been difficult as time has gone on to almost sort of step back and give other people um, leadership responsibilities? This has kind of been your baby for so long, hasn't it? Funnily enough, coming up to my 70th birthday, which I celebrated this year, I had a number of health issues, which I think were a kick up the backside wonderfully, and I thank God for them. 
even though I wouldn't wish to go through them again. <laughs> Not many people thank God for their health uh, problems. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, and it, it meant, it forced me in a good sense yes. to come down to part-time, to lay aside the executive part of the chairmanship, any hands-on managerial. I've got a fantastic executive, chief executive in Nola Leach. I can leave that to her and just work behind the scenes mm. strategically. Um, it hasn't been as hard as I thought it would be. I'm still in the process now of wanting to um, wind down slowly um, and not phase out, but fade, not fade out, but phase out. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, and of course, in America particularly, I gather that the Christian denominations and Christian ministries are not very good at finishing well and transitioning. And I'm determined, I'm determined to do it well. And I pray that regularly, God mm -hmm. help me to finish well and transition so that it's seamless. Yes. And, and yet at the same time, the care will go on from strength to strength after I've left completely. And I think that'll be the mark of God's anointing or calling if the work prospers after I've gone. I'm Sam Hales. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio and you've joined us for The Profile this afternoon where we delve into a person's life, faith and testimony. My guest today is Lyndon Bowring. We'll be hearing lots more from him right after this. Premier Christianity magazine. In this month's issue. Old Testament stories containing the torture, rape or murder of women come under the spotlight. In light of the Me Too movement, we ask, as Christians, how should we read these passages today? Plus, find out what true racial diversity could look like in our churches and discover the article your pastor wishes you'd read but is too embarrassed to ask. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. My guest on today's show is the co-founder of Christian Charity Care, Lyndon Bowring. Let's listen in to the second part of our conversation together. You're incredibly well thought of and highly regarded in the in the Christian community. There are many people, you mentioned some of their names already, but there are many well-known Christians like yourself who would speak so incredibly highly of, of you and your ministry and it's interesting that uh, a moment ago when I looked for your name on Google there's surprisingly not as much as we might expect and I, this kind of led me to wonder has a lot of your work actually even though care has been so public has a lot of your other work personally been quite behind the scenes with networking with other leaders and discipling others? Oh there's no doubt about that and that gives me enormous satisfaction to see leaders coming together who wouldn't otherwise come together. People who have strong opinions would call themselves evangelical, but would never fellowship together, would never eat together, never go in each other's churches, seeing them come together and and apologize to each other and say, I didn't realize you're such a nice person. Wow. And you've seen, seen this happen with people, have you? Yeah, yeah. And one group I remember bringing together two years ago, one guy said to me, good job you were in the room, because if you hadn't been, I think I'd have got up and hit him. <laughs> and it was that sort of, but, but at the end, I really respected him. It was a fiery, young, godly, but human uh, guys going places. Wow. Are you able to name any names of people you've brought together? Well, 
I think the fact that FIEC and uh, lovely Word Alive coming back to Spring Harvest, because if you remember, Spring Harvest Board divorced Word Alive. Um, and that was a great pain for me because I, I was chair of the board at the time and I I, uh, I didn't approve of it, but the majority of board who'd been there longer than I felt it was right. So there was a, 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 a break, yes. a divorce. And that's seeing Hugh Palmer and Malcolm Duncan embracing one another and John Stevens from the FISC happily coming along and saying, you know, I didn't have a great deal of respect for other evangelicals in that certain arena, and now I do because I've met them and prayed with them and, and ate with them, and, and it was just it's just mm. fabulous. And so we've had this little 1721 initiative going on at all the, all the major, I think we were at 21 gatherings, events, Spring Harvest, Keswick, New Wine, you name it, Word Alive, this summer, just making a statement of unity on the basics of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. And and so people of all persuasions evangelically yeah. have signed it, signed up to it. And we've got further meetings in February next year. We bring together over 100 key leaders right across the board. Um, and then... So wow. it's, and this is 1721 is, is taken from John chapter 1721? Yeah, Jesus, the, the world might know through our unity um, that God is who he is and yes. Christ is who he is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the prayer of Jesus for us. Yes. Um, yeah, because I, I guess those those people who would describe themselves as evangelical Christians is already quite a small club, if I can put it that way. So it seems for there to be any division within evangelicalism, not only, as you say, it's against what Jesus said about praying we'd have unity, but it seems a real shame when arguably it's in some ways, we might say getting harder and harder to be a Christian or to hold evangelical beliefs in this country. For us to then further divide, it, it does seem wrong, doesn't it? Yes, and, and for example, the African-Caribbean churches have felt marginalised. And Steve Clifford, the current general director, has gone out of his way to embrace mm. them and include them and involve them. Yes, this is Steve Clifford from the Evangelical Alliance. Yeah. He, he sat in that very chair and did an interview like this oh. and, and spoke of some of that as well. He yeah. was really keen to reach out to Absolutely. that community. A light went on in, in his head one day. We brought a group of them around the table from all the major Afro-Caribbean denominations in the Doubletree Hilton here in... Westminster, and uh, care paid for the lunch together. And when Steve heard how they truly felt, he was like Paul on the road to Damascus. He said, "This is this must must end." And if they've ever felt loved, appreciated, valued, it's under Steve's leadership. And he fast tracked several of them to come onto the Evangelical Alliance Council, and and it was lovely to be a part of that. Mm. Pick up the bill. Yes. Well, um, I wanted to talk about some of the issues that CARE has been really heavily involved in campaigning. We mentioned a couple of them in passing, but I mean, one that, that you mentioned clearly 
has, has upset a lot of Christians since 1967 is abortion. And this is an issue that many Christians will feel very strongly about. I think we can safely say most Christians would describe themselves as pro-life. And so there is some unity generally around this question of being pro-life. But when it comes to the law, when it comes to care, what do you actually want to see happen? Do you want to see there to be a total ban on abortion, for example? Well, I think it's step by step. I mean, when William Wilberforce in 1807, I think it was, introduced his first bill, which outlawed the trade his greatest opponents, amongst the greatest opponents, were fellow evangelicals who felt that it's not just the trade, but we must find abolition of those who are in slavery. So that followed 31 years or 30 years later when the government uh, treasury paid for every slave to be released. But, but it, so it's step by step. And, you know, even Christians will have, for example, views on rape and uh, incest. And so you could go steadily and and draw people in. And I think our heart's desire is is to see abortion just unthinkable. Um, so you wouldn't necessarily legislate against it entirely? There, no. w- there could be some exceptions. Yeah, they, they would have to be in order to, to, to move towards the place where people say abortion is mm. unthinkable. You yes. know? And that takes time. Mm. So you, David Alton succeeded in persuading Parliament to reduce from 28 weeks to 24 weeks and pressure's on now to introduce further because we're seeing children at 18 and 20 weeks, you know, albeit in intensive care. So so really, I, I guess the strategy is is to grad- gradually yeah. reduce the time yeah. limit. Yeah, and there are various restrictions. I mean, for example, two doctors are supposed to agree um, and we've got abortion on demand, really, in most of the country. And it's just signed by the second doctor who never sees the patient. That's 170,000 last year. And uh, I, 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 it, it, it grieves the heart of God to see these little voiceless ones ushered into eternity. I mean, we believe that. Spurgeon believed it's the reform position that every unborn child... Uh, who's aborted or miscarried goes straight into the presence of God, and and therefore, if it's true, there'll be more people in heaven who've been aborted than who lived, and that doesn't please God's heart. I mean, you look at the Old Testament, how much child sacrifice there was. That's the nearest we come to abortion, where kings and it became common practice to sacrifice your firstborn, kill the child. So we mustn't rest and. Uh, because we believe this is on God's heart. Now, I think the important thing is to reach out to the mother. In fact, somebody once said, in your campaign for abortion, the greatest gift you can give is to love the mother, support the woman who thinks, I can't go on with this. And so adoption and other things need to become more... Some women say, you mean give up my baby in adoption? I'd rather have an abortion. So the mentalities, you know, anyway. So it's, it's, it's that compassionate, I think that's what, like the hospice movement, if that compassionate caring is going to win hearts more than our campaigning. It, um, this would be 31 years ago, I marched through London with a banner, and I've got it to this day, sorry, the picture of it. Yeah. And it said, abortion kills. And I got my little... 
six-month-old son on my other shoulder, wrapped up. Um, I would never do that again. I do believe abortion kills, but what's that saying to a woman who is standing on the pavement considering how can I cope with another child or, you know, someone who's pregnant through misfortune or an affair and, and, and just frightened about the implications of keeping the child. So we had a campaign in Northern Ireland with the Evangelical Alliance, Both Lives Matter. I think that's the way to yeah. win the war. It's so interesting to hear that while you haven't changed your views on abortion, you've changed the way yeah. you would campaign on it. Yeah. I wonder if there are other issues like that. I mean, I was looking, for example, at some of the statistics around another topic that, that can be quite divisive and cause controversy, but, but around uh, current attitudes towards gay marriage and specifically homosexuality. And it was interesting to read that according to the British Attitudes Survey, in 1987, 64% of UK adults believed sexual relations between two adults of the same sex was always wrong. That's, 80, that's sorry, 64% believing it's always wrong. Today, that figure is 22%. So in a relatively short time, there's, there's been a massive shift on the general public's attitude towards something like homosexuality. And I wonder not, not whether that shift in attitude would necessarily change some Christians' beliefs, but whether that should change the way we talk about it, the way we campaign on it. Has, has care changed the way you perhaps publicly talk about that issue, given how societal attitudes have shifted? Yes, I think we have been brought up with a start. And you see how fast that change came about. And it has resulted in us changing our attitude. Um, and interestingly, Nola Leach, my chief executive, sat next to uh, Peter Tatchell. She was speaking, they were both speaking from different positions on, on uh, the Oxford Union debate. And Peter Tatchell turned to her and said, you know, I, I, I respect you for your views, which are totally different from his. What I can't bear is hypocrisy, someone on the one hand speaking against and then conducting themselves in a, a different manner behind closed doors. And so the, Peter Tatchell has, has been a, a gallant support for Keir's position, even though he disagrees. Right. Um, but I think... We have changed our attitudes. I think we, we were harsh in those days and there was little compassion uh, towards the person who's a same-sex attraction and, and they weren't felt welcome in our churches. They were felt to be like lepers and somehow we've got to show them that they're welcome and, and loved. And certainly I'm longing to learn how I can do that more without changing my views. Yes. I think that's a very um, important message for part of the church to hear. I mean, I still encounter those who will, frankly, in my personal opinion, have homophobic attitudes, who are Christians, who, who believe, believe the gospel. But some of the times I hear this expressed, it does feel like it comes from a place of almost hatred towards those who are, who are gay. What, what would be your message to somebody who says, look, I just believe what the Bible says, but who also comes across without that compassion you're talking about? Have you had to win people like that over? Or what would you say to that? Well, I've tried to. You know, you tend to, if, you, if you're of that point of view, you'll think of the extremes of homosexual promiscuity and so on and so on. But when you encounter 
people who've fallen in love with someone of the same sex and you remember what it was like to fall in love yourself with somebody of the opposite sex. And that drawing um, is not so much about sexual activity, it's about sexual acceptance and and tenderness and kindness toward each other. But so many of these men have committed relationships which are turn out to be not sexual. They may have some sexual beginnings. Um, and the understanding between them is is phenomenal. And you've just got to respect that. Um, as unnatural as you might feel it to be, um, and, and, and you might feel in the sight of God it's wrong, and a Christian believer shouldn't and should remain celibate, as I believe. Um, sexual activity is exclusively for married couples or heterosexual couples in a committed relationship. Um, so it, it it's a hard one, mm. and uh, and I, I I can understand. I used to have hard feelings and harsh feelings, and just you must stop it, and uh, no compassion or no. It didn't enter into the the tenderness and the mm. and the the love that can be there. We come sometimes get obsessed with the sexual element of it. Right. Yes. I mean, that's been a charge uh, for many evangelical, charge leveled at evangelical Christians for a long time that, oh, you're obsessed about sex. This has been something that often the secular world will say to the church. I want to move on, though, because um, some of these issues haven't changed. I mean, abortion, arguably, the fundamental issue has not changed over time. But it's interesting how other issues have arisen in very relatively recent years that you've started to, to tackle. And the one I wanted to talk on briefly was artificial intelligence. This is something that may not be on people's radar at all. And yet you as CARE have taken quite a strong stand, arguably quite early on, and said Christians need to be thinking about artificial intelligence. Why? Well, the late John Stott, who was a patron of CARE, um, one of the last things he said to me when I asked him what does he see as principal issues facing Christians in, in, in coming years, and he said what it means to be human. And at the time, I, I didn't appreciate it. But when you see artificial intelligence and the um, algorithms where you're, you're blending machine and human, um, it's dangerous. And we mustn't think because it's new technology, it's all right, all good. And it's just a warning to, to keep keep an eye on it, what it means to be human. And these robots and artificial will always be robots. But you see in Japan and, and parts of America where people treat them like pets and then treat them like almost like humans. Mm. And they can be companionable. If someone's lonely and at home and no family, no friends to visit, you know, um, a robot doing some chores around the house can be a real blessing. But it's just keeping that made in the image of God. And of course, Many in the technology world are wanting to make these robots in the image of man. So they're, they're human and have that human element and edge. And I've seen some of these uh, sex models that are available, sex robots. I mean, honestly, you, you look twice and you think, is that a robot? Is that a human? They are so brilliantly done. And you can select color, skin, tints, eye colors, eyebrows. You can, t you know, it's... And um, so it's just a, a warning and, and, and at the same time to, to celebrate um, 
the good things that robots provide and artificial intelligence provides. You know, when we are telephoning and there's a voicemail message and so on, and recognize mm. it's a machine and it's valuable, but let's keep precious human beings yes. distinct. Sure. Uh, someone was uh, showing me a story the other day where it was suggested that the technology will soon exist where rather than going to church and seeing a vicar at the front, you would have a pre-programmed robot who, say in an Anglican context, for example, could lead people through the liturgy because you just program in what the robot says, could even administer communion. What do you think about that? Well, uh, I was in a church in um, Cornwall, uh, just went to a local church because we were there for a week's holiday. Never been to the church before, nothing about it, but there was a service. And of course, they couldn't have communion. You can only have communion once a month because of the, um, the ordained priest vicar was only available once a month. Right. And and it's it's a challenge when you think those people could have communion every Sunday. And either we're going to say no, but we're going to anoint and set apart lay people, I hate, heard, hate the word lay, but you understand me, mm. um, who could be permitted. That might, might be a, robots might make the Church of England make that radical decision. Yes. Um, there has been some issues, I suppose, down the years where, where not only have societal attitudes changed, but arguably uh, attitudes of Christians have changed to some of the issues you've campaigned on. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is Sunday trading. Now, I can think of many Christians today who who would say, you know, I'm a Christian, I observe the Sabbath, but but for me maybe a Sabbath is a Monday or a Tuesday, and, and even if it is a Sunday, my conscience is clean if I popped the shop at uh, three o'clock on a, on a Sunday afternoon, and actually I'm a bit frustrated when it gets to four o'clock and I can't buy my groceries for, for tomorrow. So, so why hold on to what even many Christians would deem as sort of archaic old Sunday trading laws? It seems to me that, that younger Christians in particular perhaps no longer see the point of not being able to shop on a Sunday anymore. How would you respond to that argument? When you talk to people who work in the retail industry and and ask them, would you prefer, if you could, to have that one day off a week, the same as most uh, many other people, they always say, yes, yes, mm. yes. And Gary Grant, of the famous entertainer toy shops, he closes his shop on a Sunday, not because of... He doesn't put a, a Bible verse in the window, but he says just for my staff to have right. a, a, a regular day off where they can be with family and friends mm. if they want to be. Um, and he's prospering. He's seeing the Lord's hand, whereas many, many toy shops are closing. He's opening. And I think, and you talk to trade unions, the ASDOR, the famous um, union supporting retail workers, they will say, if possible, if we could all have that one day off, it would help. But at the same time, you know, if if every shop and restaurant um, was closed, every corner shop was closed on a Sunday, many many Christians would be at a loss because they always go out for a meal after church or um, on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Young people meet together in pubs and whatever coffee bars. Um, so we have to be practical. And and um, I mean, I championed. Um, against the Sunday trading bill what Mrs. Thatcher introduced um, and we lost. But again, some shops are not allowed. So, for example, I drive past Westfield to go to church on a Sunday because they don't open until later on a Sunday. I'm at church in 10 minutes. Coming back after they've opened, (laughs) 
it's half an hour. <laughs> and I think smiling, you know, I'm glad that some of these stores, just a few more hours. Yes. Um, but, but it sounds like the argument you're making is actually more to do with family yeah. and treating your employees yeah. well. But some Christians might say, hang on, that's not the reason that God gave us that law about the Sabbath, is it? Well, I, th- I think in a funny way it is. He, he wanted us to rest. And when you think of clergy on a Sunday, it's the toughest day of the week for many of them. They're not resting, but they'll find the alternative. And I think where possible to try and find a day or the equivalent of to rest. And I think it was done largely for our human goodwill and our mental uh, health that God gave it in the beginning, I think, knew that mankind couldn't do this. And of course, after the Russian Revolution, they abolished a seven-day week and people working a 10, 11-day week, so-called. And uh, they saw the ill health of the Russians. So I think God probably gave it primarily not for worship but for health. Mm. And thank God many Christians can get to church on a Sunday. I think we've got to be thinking what about those who can't? Mm. And are we supporting them? Are we praying for them whilst we are having the freedom? Mm. So as you look at the, the church in the UK now, are you hopeful? Well, we have a leadership program now, which has been running for about 18 years and 28 years. <laughs> 28 years. Yeah, and hundreds of youngsters have come through it. It's a year-long training. And once they're made aware of what the Bible has to say, once they're aware of what the culture is, prevailing culture, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, says Philip's translation of Romans 12. Their, their eyes are open and they're alert. And, and I'm hopeful. I'm seeing young people get into positions of influence who've come through the programme. The church generally, I think, yeah, I'm, I am encouraged, honestly, as I look out and, and see majority of people would agree that abortion was wrong. Mm-hmm. When care began... Um, many people felt it was wrong to even mention these matters. Hmm. And I think, so I'm encouraged with, alongside the Evangelical Alliance and other agencies, the church has been mobilized and is aware, but we've only just begun. Hmm. So I'm saying to my successors, you've got a great platform, a good grounding here, but there's so much more to build. Yes. Uh, You have an interesting position as well, because we mentioned already a lot of your preaching, and obviously a lot of your work has also been political, because some evangelicals have been concerned in recent years that we're becoming known for our social action, and we're running food banks, and that's wonderful, and we're street pastoring, and that's great, and we're campaigning politically, and that's really important, but what about the gospel? What about preaching the gospel? Uh, How do you feel about that kind of distinction that sometimes gets drawn? Is there a danger that Christians become known more for their social action and their political campaign oh, than what yes. we actually believe? And I, 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 I've spoken out on the subject and Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God in which the righteousness of God is revealed that just to live by faith. And we mustn't, we mustn't veer from that. That's our primary calling. But keeping it as our primary calling, there's so much more we can do. And I've said to guys who are really into street um, pastors and food banks, Guys, don't forget your primary calling. And there's no reason why the two shouldn't go hand in hand. It's not either or. It's both and. I'm a passionate believer and lover of the gospel. I'm an evangelist at heart. I want to see people saved. But at the same time, once you're saved, to work it out with fear and trembling, including social action. Mm. What's been the best day of your ministry and the worst day? I think the best day was when I married Celia because she's been a true partner with me 
on speaking, on writing and working together. I, I couldn't have lived this last 40 odd years without her. I think the worst day of my life was felt like when I was in the Houses of Parliament. David Alton's bill was being introduced. Fantastic. Reducing the period in which an abortion was allowed from 28 to 24 weeks. And Ken Clark, who was the Secretary of State for Health, quickly slipped in an amendment to allow abortion up to birth, where there was a serious handicap. When you think of a serious handicap, people in our society, if we could catch them before birth, we could legally destroy them simply because of their disability. It felt like the darkest day of my life. Mm. There was a lot of publicity not that long ago around Down syndrome in this issue, yeah. where other countries where they've allowed um, the abortion if it's because the baby has Down syndrome. Um, the statistics are shocking, where it's something like 99% of uh, fetuses have been aborted. As we look to the future, is is this going to be a, a more pressing and important issue for for Christians to campaign on, where there seems to be, from some quarters of the political world, this idea that we can somehow eradicate disabilities through abortion? No doubt about it. And they say... You can tell how civilized a society is, how it treats the most vulnerable. And when you talk to parents of Down syndrome children, they'll tell you of the love and the fun and the hard work uh, that it is bringing up a child with that syndrome. And I think it's championing the most vulnerable will be important. And it's interesting that the Nuffield Foundation just recently said they felt that there was no reason, no moral reason why we shouldn't be genetically modifying embryos to improve their mental, physical abilities. So that's eugenics. So on the one hand, you've got the, you know, to try and find the perfect child. And of course, Down syndrome, that's the most, for some people, the most imperfect. And I think it's the church championing, caring for those with mental disabilities uh, would be the answer to any possible law that might want to destroy them. Mm. So what does the future hold for yourself over the next few years? Well, um, I'm in that happy stage where I'm um, slowing down. I don't think I will ever retire, um, apart from health reasons. Uh, If I'm well and I have my mental faculties, um, I might end up simply praying and be a serious prayer. Um, I'm not feeling able to do much more uh, or be an encourager to young people to assure them of my prayers and take an interest in their ministries and, um, you know, to be not a grumpy old man, but a (laughs) hope-filled, encouraging old man. (laughs) Well, you've been a hope-filled and encouraging young man, certainly at heart, Lyndon, today. It's been really lovely to chat. Thank Thank you so much for coming on the programme. Thank you. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. It's The Profile this afternoon. I'm Sam Hales. I've been sitting down with the co-founder of Christian Charity Care, Lyndon Bowring. If you missed any of today's show, you can catch up on the podcast. Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. You can download this show as a podcast, meaning you'll get a new interview with a leading Christian every single week. And if you are listening to this as a podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people to discover the show. We'll be back at the same time, same place next week with another great interview for you.